Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast that delves into the paranormal and tinkers under the hood of it to find out what exactly is happening. We are indeed. Um, And today I thought we'd kind of do not a massive break from what we normally do, but we're going to cover more of the kind of strange angle of what the quantum mechanics are about. So it's not going to be paranormal with a spooky big P. Uh, It's going to be paranormal in a kind of strange way. Um, Probably worth saying, I don't know how, what they say on movies, uh, parental guidance is probably needed for this episode. Mild Um, peril. Yeah. Well, just to give you an idea, um, over the course of this episode, we're going to talk about rats, drug addiction, vomits execution and having wet pants so um yeah so make of that what you will it will all become clear i'm sure as we go into it um the reason i wanted so this uh we're not doing the really big paranormal stuff i wanted to look at weird experiments and it's partly because we started doing this um and we called ourselves the quantum mechanics because science is often stranger what people would regard as the kind of spooky paranormal especially in the world of quantum mechanics um so that got me thinking about weird experiments and one jumped into my head that i'd heard about that i thought was worth talking about and that really sparked the rest of the episode so i'm going to start off talking about something called rat park i don't know if you've heard of rat park ben but it's a great uh, experiment that was done in the 70s. Oh, I haven't, no. So, uh, it was... I'll, I'll give you the basic outline and then we'll go into a bit more detail. Um, it was an experiment that was set up to look at uh, the factors behind drug addiction. So, I guess it's kind of partly an experiment to deal with the simple nature versus nurture debates and how much that affects and relates to drug addiction. So this scientist decided to create, I guess, two environments for rats. One was a kind of very bad rat prison, and one was a kind of rat heaven, uh, I think, and it's been nicknamed Rat Park because it was like a rat theme park. So you had these two sets of rats living in different environments. Um, And then let me go into the details. So... Uh, Yes, it was called Rat Park in the late 1970s. It was an experiment by Professor Bruce K. Alexander, and he wanted to study whether continued drug addiction was entirely due to the effects of drug consumption or whether outside factors could have an influence on the potential for addiction. He took two groups of rats and separated them into two separate enclosures. Half were placed in single standard cages with each rat being completely isolated. So no no contact with any of his fellow rats. Um, the other half were placed in a giant specialised built open enclosure that had painted walls that looked like woodlands, cedar shavings, dozens of boxes for the rats to nest and play in. He essentially provided everything needed to keep the rats happy. Most significantly, the rats inhabiting the closure were able to play, fight, socialise, engage with one another, um, do what rats do, have rat babies. Um, this enclosure was called Rat Park. The scientists began to offer morphine 
to both sets of rats, mixing the drug into sugary water concoction that rats' taste buds could hardly resist, um, let alone the morphine, I guess. Uh, the rats that were isolated in the metal cages were far quicker to start drinking the morphine water and consumed it in much higher volumes. Cage consumption of the morphine water was 19 times higher than it was in Rat Park. Despite being freely available, the morphine water went largely untouched within rats in Rat Park, preferring their social life uh, and engagements to the effects of the drug. Most surprising, this, this next bit is quite amazing. Most surprising, the results of the second stage of the experiment, when the scientists experimented with rats deliberately making them addicted to morphine and observing whether a difference in environment would impact the rats' drug rehabilitation process. So they started them off in the kind of, I guess, the isolated jail, got them addicted to morphine, um, then moved them into Rat Park. Uh, so... Uh, of the two groups, the rats that were kept in the isolated cages not only continued drinking the morphine water, but increased their intake. However, the rat park rats, the ones who'd started off life in the isolation, uh, drank significantly less of the morphine water and actively attempted to resist consumption of the drug, even when withdrawal symptoms began to be experienced. Despite both groups being physically dependent, the Rat Park rats deliberately tried to return to social life undisrupted by the drug, choosing to endure the effects of the withdrawal. Which is just incredible, isn't it? So, so the conclusion, so the, Professor Alexander concluded that continued substance abuse was not simply due to the effects of the drug, but that certain environmental factors could trigger a higher likelihood of addiction. More specifically, the Rat Park rats were provided with tools that benefited their mental health, freedom to run around, toys and encouraging play, and active socialisation with others, and they were less likely to consume the morphine water, but even when made forcibly addicted, were more likely to resist the drug and pursue sobriety. Which, I, I, I guess the first part of that experiment is, you kind of go a bit, yeah, okay, fine. If I was in an isolated, you know, solitary confinement, in effect, a prison, and somebody offered me morphine, especially if I knew there was, didn't know whether there was any chance I was ever going to get out there, you'd probably start consuming it, right? Yeah, right. So I think yeah. the, the amazing bit is the ones that became addicted when put into the other environment basically not only resisted the drug but tried to wean themselves off it, which is just incredible. Yeah, it is. It's um, well. It I guess it, he was looking for an analogy to like human circumstance. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. Well, I, because it was the seventies, and I think it was the it was the era of, era of Reagan, um, and there was the big war against drugs. I think by the Reagan administration. I, I don't know. Some of us of a certain age will remember there was a an advert with this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs where they kind of ended up frying an egg and stuff. And Yeah, yeah. Um, there's some weird footage of Nancy Reagan telling young teenagers not to take drugs, which is probably not the best, most effective way of doing it. Um, yes. But, but I think there was a feeling that it was, you know, certain people were either born to be drug addicts and, you know, that, that meant they weren't successful rather than maybe looking at it the other way, that maybe their environment was making them drug addicts and 
because they had nothing to live for, I guess, or felt like that. Yeah, so he, he's kind of trying to find out the truth between the nature-nurture theory, I guess. Did, I guess, yeah, and what kind of percentage. Now, there has been some um, people who've uh, challenged, let's say, his work, um, saying the type of rats he used was wrong, um, and it was this experiment was recreated in the 90s, um, and the results weren't quite as impressive as Dr. Alexander's 70s experiment, um, leading people to believe that, you know, maybe he wasn't, he didn't execute it necessarily in the right way. But even in the one that happened in the 90s, those in Rat Park, the rats in Rat Park were less likely to take and be addicted to drugs than the ones who were in solitary confinement, basically. Okay. Um, but, you know, just this 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 idea that there's this kind of rat theme park that's like Disneyland, but not for mice, obviously, but for rats, I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, no, that, that is interesting. And I I guess it it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you're um if you haven't got much going on in life, then you look for something that is going on in life. That I suppose I suppose the thing that is uh, curious is you kind of get a um, a loop be- uh, because there's a certain point. So we're talking like rock stars and film stars. Oh right, and stuff, yeah, yeah. Who get addicted? Who get addicted? And... Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. I wonder whether it's because they're isolated because of who they are, or you know, some, yeah. so, something similar. Well, there's that classic thing, isn't there, with you have, you know, rock musicians who go on tour and then they're kind of taking drugs to make sure they're on stage and performing and obviously the party lifestyle of being on tour. And then when the tour finishes, just get incredibly depressed and then take yeah. drugs because they're incredibly depressed. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess like all these things, it's not a... Um, and maybe the 1994 recreation of this experiment... Um, should be given more weight it's probably not as complicated or sorry it's not as simple as oh if you're in a bad environment you'll be a drug addict and if you're in a lovely environment you won't just like all things it's a little bit more complicated to that than that but i think it it was it's definitely used in a lot of um, psychology circles um to kind of show how you know your mental health and your mental well-being can affect your behavior so it's quite an important study i think but um yeah whether it counts as a weird experiment i guess it does to a degree but certainly the next one i want to talk about does count as a weird experiment um do you want to hear about the vomit drinking doctor um (laughs) In a way. In a way. So I must warn everyone, if they are, uh, depending on when you listen to your podcast, if you're eating your breakfast, eating your lunch, eating your dinner, eating, basically, you you probably want to save this story for another time. This is the story of Stubbins Firth, who was a Philadelphia doctor in training, which I think could be relevant, during the early 19th century. Having observed that yellow fever ran riot during the summer but virtually disappeared during the winter, he concluded this must be because yellow fever, contrary to popular opinion, was not a contagious disease. 
Instead, he theorised it was caused by an excess of stimulants, such as heat, food and noise. I'm not sure how you catch a disease from noise, but I guess it was the 19th century. Um, <laughs> but what good is a theory if you can't prove it? So to get the proof, Firth designed a heroic self-experiment. He set out to demonstrate that no matter how much he exposed himself to yellow fever, he wouldn't catch it. I'm reading this for an article on it and I'm, I'm going to edit bits of it because I don't think I can read it without vomiting. He started to make small incisions on his arms and pouring the fresh, fle- fresh black vomit obtained from yellow fever patients into the cuts. He didn't get sick. I'm going to allude to vomit from now on, I think. Okay, Next. Ha- have, have a word that means vomit. Yeah, we need a safe word. Bath, should we say yeah, bath is good, yeah. Sounds like bath. Next, he dribbled some bath into his eyes. He fried some up on a skillet and inhaled the fumes. He fashioned some into a pill and swallowed it. He then took to drinking entire glasses of pure, undiluted bath. bath. Still, he didn't get sick. He rounded out his experiment by liberally smearing himself with, the ye- with other yellow fever-tainted fluids, blood, saliva, perspiration and urine. However, as ever, he declared his theory proven because he felt healthy. Unfortunately, yeah, healthy. He, healthy. Unfortunately, he was wrong. Yellow fever is actually very contagious, but it requires direct transmission into the bloodstream usually by a mosquito to cause the infection. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's amazing after all that that he was still alive, that he didn't kind of contract something else. But, yeah, uh, he definitely suffered for his experiments. Yeah, suffered. I mean, he sounds like somebody who has a bit of an odd peccadillo and is just saying, oh, yeah, no, this is totally an experiment. Yeah, yeah. Whilst yeah. at the same time, he's pushing his underwear down with his left hand because this is really getting to him in the nicest possible way. Well, it reminds me a bit of those kind of crazy scientists that you get on the uh, the old kind of black and white movies, you know, the kind of Frankenstein, it's alive, it's alive, he's just, you know, or The Fly or something like that, where you go, I've got to, I can only test it out myself. I'm sure there's been many a Marvel yeah. movie that's kind of based that way as well. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure Marvel will be picking up the rights to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Vomit I, man. <laughs> I, but it does take a special kind of thought process to go... Oh, yeah, all these people are real. I think I will... What shall I do? Shall I, like, lick them, take some of their blood? No, I'm going to fry up some of their vomit and inhale it. Yeah, that sounds perfect. And and then I'm going to smear all manner of their bodily fluids all over mine while putting little cuts in myself. It's... Yeah. So... (sighs) I think if you were going to kind of, in scientific history, I think you'd probably have to label him an idiot rather than a hero. Um, but uh, briefly, I do want to get onto a hero because it's worth a little bit of a, an honourable mention. It's very short. Um, 
So there's an experiment done um, during World War II. So, so basically supersonic jets came into fruition and the US military were testing them out. Paul Stapp volunteered for an experiment around ejector seats out of supersonic jets because this was new technology and I guess maybe they thought about the ejector seat as an afterthought. Um, where he was first ejected from 19 miles per hour up to 200 miles an hour out of a supersonic jet in a untested, i.e. not tested by humans, ejector seat. So can you imagine the first time you're doing that? You're in a supersonic jet, you don't know if this thing is going to work, and you've got to press the button that ejects you out at 90 miles an hour. And oh, then they go... Uh, go on. Oh, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, I've opened the car window on the motorway, and <laughs> that is fairly terrifying, yeah. Well, and then you think, you get back and you land, and they say, that's great. Now, can you do it at 200 miles an hour? Thanks. Yeah, yeah great. Well, that's all I'm going to tell about this story, apart from he did this over the course of seven years, 29 times at varying speeds in different supersonic jets. So, you know, I don't know. I think he deserves he deserves a bit of a salute for being a... He's probably saved, what, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he deserves a salute. And he he's, he's not coating himself in urine from the afflicted, so... I don't know yeah. being ejected from a plane at 200 miles an hour. I'd be coating <laughs> myself in urine. <laughs> yeah, no, fair, fair. <laughs> All right, so he's a hero, but we're back to something bizarre again. Okay. Um, so in the summer of 1942, Professor Lawrence Leshan stood in the darkness of a cabin in upstate New York where a row of young boys lay sleeping. He spoke aloud repeatedly a single phrase over and over. He said, My fingernails taste terribly bitter. My fingernails taste terribly bitter. Lesson wasn't mad. He was conducting a sleep learning experiment. All the boys had been diagnosed as chronic nail biters and Lesham wanted to find out if nocturnal exposure to negative suggestion about nail biting would cure them of their bad habit. Um... Leshan initially used a, uh, well, he basically cut a record of himself saying the uh, message over and over again. Perfectly it, it, normal. Perfectly yeah. normal. No, um, there's nothing uh, odd about that at all. And it's probably better than a Nickelback album, right? Um, oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, on the record, it faithfully repeated the phrase 300 times a night as the boys lay sleeping. The only problem was, five weeks into the experiment, the record player broke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Les had to improvise. He had to go live, keep music live. Um, so he would stand in the darkness of the cabin and speak the message to himself over and over again. Um, at the end of the summer, he examined the boys' nails by, nail biting and concluded that 40% of them had kicked the habit. The sleep learning effects seemed to be real. However, since then, researchers dispute his conclusion. In 1956, an experiment at Santa Monica College used an, uh, oh, I can, that's a really long word, electroencephalograph. electroencephalograph. That that's is a great Scrabble score. It's a great Scrabble score. Um, to make sure the subjects that were fully asleep before playing the message. Under these conditions, the sleep learning 
effect disappeared. So I, basically, with, I could have got away without trying to pronounce that huge word. Basically, in the second experiment that was conducted later, they realised it was having an effect when they were kind of half asleep. It's kind of, I guess, in a slightly hypnosis-y type place rather than fully asleep. I, d- I don't know if that matters. He still kind of proved his point, right? If 40% of them stopped biting their nails. But, yeah... I'm well, sure you need to record I, an album for that. I, I would imagine they were scared about the strange Some man guy. standing in the side in the side of their bedroom. <laughs> or do you think nail biting might have increased? In that yeah, story? yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you uh, another weird, 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 weird experiment. This involves a guy called John Deering, and I picked this um, because. No matter what his crimes, John Deering seems like he was a bit of a character. So on October 31st, 1938, John Deering took a last drag on his cigarette, sat down in a chair and allowed a prison guard to place a black hood over his head and pin a target to his chest. Next, the guard attached electronic sensors to Deering's wrists. Deering had volunteered to participate in an experiment, the first of its kind, to have his heartbeat recorded as he was shot through the chest by a firing squad. So, yeah, he was on death row and basically volunteered to be a guinea pig in this experiment. During the night of October the 30th, 1938, Deering ate a last meal of pheasant, <laughs> which he requested because he's never, never had it before. I like that choice. Good style, yeah. Yeah, I think most people have McDonald's, don't they, or something, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, He was joined by his attorney, along with a prison warden and a chaplain. During his meal, Deering said, from here on in, I've got to be an actor. Nobody must know what's going on inside of me. Um, Although that surely is the point of the experiment. Um, He agreed to allow physicians to monitor his heart activity over the course of his execution, believed to be the first such experiment of its kind. At 6.30am on October 31st, Deering was taken to a room at Sugarhouse Prison in Salt Lake City. 75 witnesses gathered to witness the event while blankets were placed over the windows to block the views from hundreds of curious spectators who gathered outside. I don't quite understand the draw of that myself, but... They just really like pheasant. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. They wanted to see the pheasant arrive. Um, A guard placed a target over Deering's heart and hood... uh, Sorry, over his heart and a hood over his head. Prison, the prison doctor connected sensors on Deering's wrists, which indicated that his heart rate jumped from 72 beats per minute to over 180 when he was strapped to the chair in front of the firing squad. Five marksmen were paid $50 each by the county. Uh, the names of the marksmen were kept secret. One was provided a rifle loaded with a blank cartridge so that no one would know who had fired the lethal shot. After thanking the warden for treating him well, Deering spoke his last words, which were, goodbye and good luck. Okay, let it go. 22 seconds later, Deering was shot. His heart entered into a spasm for four seconds, gradually stopped after 15.6 seconds, and he continued to breathe and struggle in his chair for nearly a minute. Deering was pronounced dead uh, at 6.48 a.m., 134.4 seconds after his heart had stopped. Um, (laughs) This is the bit that I just thought, what a character. He was was asked at one point, 
um, why he was agreed to take part in the experiment. I mean, he's on death row. He could have just said, no, forget it. Yeah. He said, I'm going out there to prove that those guys who said life begins at 40 are cockeyed liars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, all, all props to him. God knows what he did. I don't know. I don't know what his crime was, but it does make you think, though. Just you know, how long? You know, you you kind of you would think that they. I think it's the same now. It's not like an instant thing. So I think a lot of people think that you know, execution. It's you don't feel anything, and it's over quite quickly. But you know, he he was his heart and was. I mean, he was going for minutes, a minute, at least a minute after scary yeah it's a bit um i don't know it's a bit sick yeah pinning a target on somebody i mean mean, yeah you've got to to think you've got a rough idea of yeah exactly i didn't didn't quite get the bullet i mean i guess you need to be sure you have to have multiple bullets it was like there was one blank and the rest were real, so no one would know if I had the shot. But on those odds, you'd be pretty sure that you had. Wouldn't yeah, you? yeah, exactly, yeah. Wow. Very bizarre. Very, very bizarre. Yeah, but uh, I like him just because he had pheasant. I I love a pheasant myself, although it can get really dry. I, f- I feel <laughs> bad for him if it was dry. I, I actually, I want to know. I want to, I, and also, I don't know where they'd have got who to cook it, because you would have thought, the prison canteen probably doesn't know how to do a decent pheasant. No, no. You you want cream and brandy with that yeah, pheasant. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he regretted his choice. It's like me and my wife when we're ever in a restaurant. I always order well and she always gets something. And go, oh, why don't I just order what you had? You always get the right thing and mine's always terrible. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> And I bet she always pinches some of it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, as I said earlier, we wanted to do this thing on strange science um, because and we called ourselves the quantum mechanics because science can often be weirder and stranger than the paranormal world with a spooky big P. Um, now, I've there's a recent experiment which just blew my mind away um, I'll try and make it as simple as possible because it does involve quantum mechanics and making that as simple as possible, as we know, is quite tricky. But it's a quantum uh, experiment that suggests there is no such thing as objective reality. Oh. Which I thought would be a topic that you would like, Ben. Yeah, very much. Physicists have long suspected that quantum mechanics allows two observers to experience different conflicting realities – Now they've performed the first experiment that proves it. Back in 1961, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Eugene Wigner outlined a thought experiment that demonstrated one of the lesser-known paradoxes of quantum mechanics. The experiment shows how the strange nature of the universe allows two observers, say Wigner and Wigner's friend, to experience different realities at the same time. Since then, physicists have used the Wigner-Friend thought experiment to explore the nature of measurement and to argue over whether objective facts can actually exist. So, yeah, I guess it's an experiment to see whether facts actually exist. There's a bit of a paradox in the experiment itself, but... 
So, yeah, so they needed to work out, argue over whether objective facts can exist. That's important because scientists carry out experiments to establish objective facts. I mean, that's the point of an experiment, right? Yeah, right, yeah. But if they experience different reality, the argument goes, how can they agree on what the facts might be? That provided some entertaining fodder for after-dinner conversation, but Wigner's thought experiment had never been more than that, just a thought experiment. Last year, however, physicists noticed that recent advances in quantum technology have made it possible to reproduce Wigner's friends test, as it became known, as a real experiment. In other words, it ought to be possible to create different realities and compare them in the lab to find out whether they can be reconciled. Today, Massimiliano Prosetti at Herat Watts University in Edinburgh and a few colleagues say they have performed the experiment for the first time. They have created different realities and compared them. Their conclusion is that Wigner was correct, that these realities can be made irreconcilable so that it is impossible to agree on an objective fact about an experiment. Wigner's original thought experiment was quite straightforward in principle. It began with a single polarised photon that, when measured, can either have a horizontal polarisation or a vertical polarisation. But before the measurement, according to the laws of quantum mechanics, the photon exists in both polarisation states at the same time. This is known as superpositioning or superpositioned. So I guess that's a bit... My reading of this is basically he conducted a quantum... His mind experiment was a, a quantum experiment that was almost like tossing a coin. Right. right? So the yeah. coin can either have heads or tails. Um, and according to quantum mechanics, a bit like if anyone's read or knows about Schrodinger's cat, which I think we will cover. We're going to do, uh, we're going to do an, another episode that will incorporate Schrodinger's cat, so I won't go into too much detail now. But Schrodinger's cat is the idea if you can't see what's happening to a cat inside a box, is it alive or dead? And the conclusion in the quantum world is it's both alive and dead at the same time. Yeah, in in that superposition state. Exactly, exactly. Um, So Wigner imagined a friend in a lab measuring the state of the photons and storing the results, so effectively measuring whether it was heads or tails. While Wigner observed from afar... Wigner had no information about his friend's measurement and so is forced to assume that the photon and the measurements are in a superposition of all possible outcomes of the experiment. So a bit like the Schrodinger's cat thing, his friend is there flicking the quantum coin saying, yep, it's a head or it's a tail, but Wigner can't, doesn't know that, so it's both heads or tails for Wigner. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm trying to make this simple. Uh, This is a kind of interference experiment showing that a photon and the measurements are indeed in superposition. From Wigner's point of view, this is a fact. The superposition exists. So it exists that they're both in the same state at the same time, if you're Wigner. The facts suggest that a measurement cannot have taken place. But this is in stark contrast to the point of view of his friend, who has indeed measured the photon's polarisation and recording it, recorded it. The friend can even call Wigner and say the measurement has been done, providing he doesn't reveal the outcome, so that the two realities are at odds with each other. This calls into question 
the objective status of the facts established by the two observers. That's the theory, but last year, the University of Vienna in Austria came up with a way to recreate Wigner's friend experiment in the lab by means of a technique involving entanglement of many particles at the same time. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail of how that effectively works because we are going to... There's a very similar thing called the double slit experiment, which is in this thing, and Ben and I are going to do that at some point. So we're going to talk a lot more about this. Um, so when they did... When they basically tried to recreate the Wigner experiment, uh, they did it in a slightly more complicated way, but the bottom line was um, the results showed that the the in the in the example of Wigner's friend they measured the polarity and the observer the the particles were in in the superposition at the same time so they effectively proved the theory that there were two realities happening at the same time as far as i understand it that's that's quite mind-blowing um I'm just going to read the end bit of this because it, it, I, I know it's quite complicated and I, yeah, as you can see it's quite complicated to kind of get out but it's really mind-blowing when you kind of you take it in. Um, so I'll put links to this stuff on our social media so you can kind of follow it up for yourself at TQM Podcast. It'll be in one of our albums that we do on Facebook so go to the photo album and see it. Uh, so the experiment basically suggests that objective reality does not exist. Um, that one or more of the assumptions, the idea there is a reality we can agree on, the idea that we have freedom of choice, or the idea of locality must be wrong. So one of those three things has got to be wrong. Um, freedom of choice, locality. Um, so, of course, there is another way out for those hanging on to the conventional view of reality. That this is that there is some other loophole in the experiment that the experimenters have overlooked. Um, and basically, loopholes, when they've tried to recreate these in the past, there have been loopholes that kind of do put into question it because it's, it's quite a complicated area. Uh, nevertheless, the work has important implications for the work of scientists. Scientific method relies on fact established through repeated measurement and agreed upon universally independently of those who have observed it. So basically, the next step for these guys is to construct an experiment creating increasingly bizarre alternate realities that cannot be reconciled. Whether this will take us is, where this will take us is anyone's guess, but Wigner and his friends wouldn't be surprised. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to follow that, but... The, I think the idiot's guide of it is his experiment, which is very much like Schrodinger's cat, his friends tossing the coin, choosing heads or tails, because Wigner himself has no knowledge of that, it has to be heads and tails at the same time because he doesn't know the outcome. Um, and the experiment that was conducted in Vienna last year, which was more complicated than that, basically proved that theory was correct, which means there is no such thing as a fact. Well, I take some comfort in that because uh, I, I've experienced that in, in real life in that when I load the dishwasher, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. But when my partner looks in the dishwasher, 
She says it's not perfect. And so I think everything I put into the dishwasher is in a state of superposition. Yeah, I think you're right. It, 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 you, you have both packed the dishwasher and not at the same time, which yes, is really correct. hard. It's really hard to moan at you for that because in one sense you've done it, in one sense you haven't. Yes, exactly, exactly. But I would also say in every sense I have done it. So, yeah. What uh, you need to do, but I'm sure this won't work, is say in future that your wife needs to load the dishwasher and you need to be the observer. Oh, yes. Yeah. I I would say that that would go down incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, particularly if I'm simply observing. It might be safer for you to volunteer to be ejected out of a 200-mile-an-hour supersonic jet, I think. I think you're probably right, and that is what I will do. In in all honesty, I would rather drink the sick of somebody who's afflicted <laughs> than uh, try to criticise my wife on her dishwasher loading. Yeah. Okay, so that, that one last one was complicated, but incredibly mind-blowing. Um, I, thought, I thought I'd end this episode with... Uh, you know, because a lot of these experiments are just kind of bizarre and strange. Um, but I guess most of them had a point, right? They were trying right. to prove something. This last one, I'm not quite sure what it was trying to prove. It was a small study uh, that may seem like it was proving the obvious. Researchers in Norway found that wearing wet underwear in cold weather can be very uncomfortable. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was a 1994 study published by the journal Ergonomics looking at eight men who sported long underwear tops and bottoms while sitting in a test chamber for 60 minutes in cold temperatures. Uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. Some men wore wet long underwear bottoms while the rest wore dry skivvies. Four wet fabrics with different thicknesses were tested. Cotton, wool, polypropylene and wool propylene blended materials. Every minute of the experiment, the men's skin temperature, rectile temperature and weight... (laughs) (laughs) Look, once again, this is someone's peccadillo. This is not science. Oh, yeah, we're going to test underwear. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, I just have to get right into the rectum. What? Oh, nothing. That's fine. Carry on. I don't think they they tested the effects on their peccadilloes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wouldn't bloody surprise me. No, no. So everybody in the experiment, the men's skin temperature, (laughs) rectile temperature and weight loss were measured. Weight loss. (laughs) Every 10 minutes, the men rated <laughs> rated how much they were shivering and sweating and how comfortable they felt. As surprising as, <laughs> as, surprising as it may seem, the men in wet under, underwear felt colder and less comfortable than the guys in drier underwear. Well, what a the surprise. Res- <laughs> the researchers concluded that to stay comfortable in cold, wet conditions... And underwear's thickness matters more than its fabric. So maybe they did find something, but Jesus, you know. And and, 
how did they reconcile the arse temperature data? I don't know. I've not seen the, I've not seen the charts on that. But. <laughs> well, well, I want Can you to imagine, see. It. I I just I just I keep thinking they probably put an ad in a paper somewhere saying, "Would you like to take part in an experiment?" And you probably went, "Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's it's fifty quid, hundred dollars, whatever. I'll, I, I'm up for it." Right, what we want you to do is to put on some underwear and go and sit in really cold water. We're going to take your temperatures, both both in a normal way and your rectile temperature, and, <laughs> and measure if you lose any weight. Is that all right with you? You just go, yeah, okay, look, thanks, thanks, but no thanks, right? Wh- which country was this? This was in Norway. Ah. I know there's... No- I mean, there's no you know. way I'm doing that. Hey, <laughs> Kate Bush. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've got to say that just uh, if you think about pointless experiments, A, that was pointless and uh, probably incredibly uncomfortable for those involved, I guess. I, I actually think it's more down to whereabouts they introduce that element of the experiment to the participants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's, here's your underwear. Okay, great. So I have to get in the cold water. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. We're measuring it. Just before yeah. you put that on, could you just bend over here? <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. put this wire up your ass. Sorry, what? <laughs> and, and I've got this vision of they're in the pool and some guy probably walks in the back of them and going... Don't bite your nails. Don't bite. <laughs> but I, I could also envisage the situation where all the scientists are gathered around and they're like, "Yeah, we're, we're going to do this. We got some, we got some funding from the military." Bill, if you start bringing in your rectal thermometers again, I'm going to have words. Ah, oh, but it is so important. <laughs> like we did a test on buns last week, and you did that. I can't believe I segued from the double slit experiment and quantum mechanics into that. But well, that's the you know, single slit experiment. Surely. Yeah, really, really, and cold at that. So I think I don't know what we've proved today, Ben, in terms of this episode. I mean, I know it's not none of this is paranormal in any way, but it's bloody strange, right? Sure. Well. What it's told me is next time we go on a ghost hunt, we're both wearing rectal thermometers (laughs) because it seems relevant. I'm I'm never going to wear anything but thermal underwear ever again, (laughs) even in the heart of winter. Oh, do you know what? I was bought some thermal underwear, the first I've ever owned about two years ago, and I have never found the right climate to wear it. It It's horrible. I, 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 I had a similar thing. I, 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 a, if anyone's not done it, they should definitely do it. I went to, uh, years ago now, but I went on holiday to Iceland. Oh, and, yes, I've been there. Uh, it's great. Oh, superb. Um, but I, I got a bit carried away in the kind of, you know, outdoor stores buying everything that I could. Thermal underwear, you know, jackets that have fleeces in and... I remember chipping up on my first day in Iceland and walking about outside and going, I'm so hot. (laughs) (laughs) I was just sweating. It was like a cold kind of winter's day in the UK. I didn't need all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we we did exactly the same. There's that um, in the centre of Reykjavik, there's kind of, I can't remember what it's called, but there's like a strip of bars and restaurants. Yeah. And we went there like on our second night and we were both... 
like completely dressed up to the nines and yeah. there were women walking around in dresses without tights on and we were like yeah. we looked like we were about to march to the arctic and every time yeah. we walk in somewhere because they have that geothermal uh, yeah. energy heating they just have it cranked up full the whole time yeah. so you yeah. walk into I, a bar and you are instantly just sweaty and and they're so you like it's eight seconds that you have to be outside and yeah yeah, yeah. well and also you. they're all very star i remember doing a similar thing chipping up in a bar looking like i don't know something out of the uh, john carpenter movie the thing and kind of you know, one of the characters rather than the monster. And then I kind of end up in this bar and everyone's in kind of Prada and Chanel and looking really stylish. <laughs> and I'm in a kind of bright green kind of, you know, fur coat, fur hooded coat. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah in every photograph, I look like John Candy in Planes, Trains and Automobiles. <laughs> That's... I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, now, thanks to these researchers in Norway, we, we, we are... F- I feel like we're fully prepared for whatever life can throw at us. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and wherever it throws it at us. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Um, so, yeah. I, I'm, uh, if anyone has any other examples of weird science experiments out there, do let us know. These were some of my favourites. But put it this way, I had a wealth of material to choose from. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not back to the underwear. <laughs> <laughs> wealth of material. So that was. I didn't mean that joke, but it's just yeah. I had a wealth of material to choose from in the weirder experiments that have been carried out there. So, um, if anyone, if anyone who uh, says they're a, a scientist says to you this paranormal stuff, it's just ridiculous. I think there are a few examples here of how the uh, the serious world of science can be just as crazy. I've always harboured a very strange. Uh sort of suspicion about proctologists but i think <laughs> if there are any proctologists out there yeah let, let me know what you think about that experiment <laughs> yeah t- tell us your insights um, <laughs> <laughs> just don't show them for the yeah, love exactly. of god well on that note i think we we should probably end it there i think um, we should end it there next week i'm gonna uh, attempt to bring you something uh, incredibly paranormal that will yeah, blow your yeah. mind and there won't be a single mention of an anus <laughs> you say that now well um, i do <laughs> yeah okay well look we uh will we'll, we'll look forward to that ben will be back uh with that uh idea next week and uh well i hope you enjoyed this episode something slightly different for us but at least we've had a laugh right oh well that was a laugh um okay. like and subscribe please Yes, like and subscribe. Go visit us on uh, Facebook and Twitter at TQM Podcast. And thanks for your ongoing support. We'll see you next time on The Quantum Mechanics. Thanks, everyone. the quantum mechanics